words from all those up Swindon fans. But you're not there yet. In it goes! Oh, it's gone in! Richard left foot in! What a volley! It's the stuff of champions! It's the stuff of dreams! And Donate races it on goal and Donate! Snake from Tompkins. What a goal from Glenn Murray. He's hardly had a touch. On he'll go. Michael Smith. Into what he's Hello and welcome to episode 73 of Together, a Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. And boy, oh boy, does it feel like I've done this show before. Um... Another game, another set of missed opportunities, and another defeat for the Albion. Uh, we are now continuing to be uh, winless in the entirety of 2020. Um, or if you want to be even harder about it, we have not won in this decade yet. <laughs> um, it is really rough. Uh, so yesterday, um, you know, we dominated the game again, as usual. Um you know, it's it's tough to continue going over these things when I feel like we're telling the same story every week uh, and still getting the same results every week. So we uh, had 23 shots, eight on target, um, three big chances uh, that we failed to convert um, compared to their 12 shots and three on target. Um, there was a pretty big difference there. Um, we completed 444 passes, uh, 126 of them in their attacking third. Uh, Palace only completed 187 passes altogether. Um, again, something that, you know, when we're dominating the ball as much as we are, uh, you expect a little bit better. Um, but we failed to convert those chances that we created. Um, interesting one, I thought, one of the stats that I did read, um, which I find incredibly interesting, um, because it's something that uh, has been kind of noted by not just fans, but big media uh, reporters, analysts, pundits as well. Uh, we actually recorded 33 crosses yesterday. Um, that is insane. Uh, because the general feeling is that we're not crossing the ball enough. Um, it's pretty clear that we are. Um, they're just not good enough. And the players that are making those those crosses into the box either aren't finding their men um, or we're not sufficiently built to make the most of those crosses, right? Um, you know, I would say that you would think um, that... With Glenn Murray on the pitch for 20 minutes yesterday and for Glenn Murray on the pitch at other times, you would think you would make the most of those balls. Um, you've got to assume that we just aren't getting enough on them. 66.5% um, possession. Um, and, you know, we were we were all over Palace yesterday. Uh, I thought that we dominated the game pretty much from the beginning to the end. Um, their one goal came from absolutely nothing. Um, and, it you know, it is a game that we we didn't deserve to lose and yet here we are uh talking about a, yet another defeat um you know the players yesterday i thought the uh the lineup was fine um i the question has to be asked as to why alexis McAllister is not in the starting 18 uh same goes for Tarek Lamptey um two players that we we 
you know, at least with McAllister, we, we put a lot of work in um, to get him in over the over the January period, and he is not able to get a look in. Um, it's very strange. It seems very counterintuitive to the work that we've just put together in January to get him in. Um, and, you know, the, the excuses of uh, match fitness or any of that stuff doesn't really count with him because he, he is 100% match fit. We know he is. Um, and, you know, he plays for the Argentine. He's played for the Argentinian national team. Um, the idea that he may or may not quite be uh, capable of playing for little old Brighton doesn't really work. Um I thought that, you know, I thought that yesterday we were exactly what I thought we were going to be in terms of going back to the uh, the the old blueprint of Grandpa's style of play. Uh, lots of the ball, keeping the ball, keeping possession, creating chances um, and failing to score them. And it's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, Guaita uh, didn't really have a lot of work to do. I think he made eight total saves yesterday, which is actually a lot for any goalkeeper. Um, but almost all of them were straight at him. He wasn't really made to work too hard um, to, to kind of notch those stats onto his belt. And <clears throat> the problem lies with the uh, the finishing ability of the players that we have in the team. Um, you know, the flashpoints of the game uh, that you've got to look at... Um, Early on in the first half, uh, Solly, well, it wasn't Solly March, it was uh, Trossard breaks through on the left-hand side, uh, plays a beautiful ball in to Solly March um, that essentially leaves him one-on-one with a goalkeeper with a little bit of pressure from a centre-back. Um, and all he needs to do uh, is hit the ball across the goal, um, whether he opens his body and hits it with his left or whether he drills it across the across the goal um, with his right, it doesn't particularly matter. Um, I think the result would have been the same either way. Uh, but Solly March decided to put it into the side netting, uh, the closest side of the goal, um, failed to even get it on target, and you know that pretty much summed up the entirety of that game. Um, later on in the second half, Lewis Dunk uh, rose highest for a corner. Um, was comfortably smashing into the back of the net uh, and hit Neil Mopai on the line um, to deny us yet another goal, um, which would have took us 1-0 up again. Uh, and then again, um, before Palace had scored, um, it a dodgy... Uh, well, it was a, it was a loose touch from Aaron Moy, actually, um, that then was uh, handily dropped into the path of Neil Mopai uh, on the half volley, all on his own, really, with just the goal and the goalkeeper to face uh, in the 18-yard box, and he uh, elects to smash it straight at him. Um, we watched a Watford side yesterday uh, finish all three of their chances that they had um, and beat Liverpool. So to say that it's unrealistic to think that we can finish one of those chances uh, and go on to win this game yesterday uh, is just not right. Um, and the, the, the buck stops at the players. Um, I understand that the, the Potter out brigade is continuing to grow and the pitchforks are coming and the torches are being lit. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, he, he has got us playing a style of football that is creating those chances. Um, and that is the style of football that we were not playing last year. Um, we were not creating chances last year. We were not being able to fashion them at all. Um, there were multiple games where we would go multiple games without a shot on target. Um, you know, and we're creating two or three 
big clear-cut chances a game, and we are failing to convert pretty much every single one of them. Um, and I think it is very, very apparent just how uh, poor this squad is for the Premier League at this point um, as, a, as a striking unit um, if we are not able to score those goals. And the question has to be why... Uh, the team selection, like, why why are we making the team selection that we're making? Um, Neil Mopai started yesterday. Uh, that's fine. Um, why didn't Glenn start with him? You know, it's it's a bit surprising to see that they did pretty well together against Sheffield United. Why was he dropped? Doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, Ali Reza Yahambach uh, has done pretty much nothing wrong. Um, you know, he, he started January incredibly well. Uh, he's done nothing but look lively pretty much since he came on um, and has been dropped. And whenever he comes on, uh, he looks dangerous. You know, I thought yesterday when he came on, he, he, he created a couple of good chances. Um, and if it wasn't for somebody blocking his volley, you know, that may well have been going into the back of the net too. So it's just, it's just very strange. Um, and it's tough to understand the reasoning behind some of the decisions that are being made. Um, and then even when those decisions pay off and we look like a team that could win a game at a canter, um, we're failing to do so because we're simply not good enough on the pitch. A uh, couple of player shout-outs yesterday. Uh, Ezekiel Shalotto, um, what a guy, winding up Zaha from the very beginning. Um, you know, I think that the... Uh, Obviously, the um, the amount of people I've been muting on Twitter over the last uh, twenty four hours for well, who are obviously all Palace um, is is very high indeed. Um, but you know, it's it's kind of surprising um, that Zaha on camera in a game that is uh, televised everywhere because it's you know not a three o'clock kickoff um, is able to spit at a player on camera. Um, and then get in his face. Um, and yes, Shalotto did kick the ball at him. No, it was not a hard kick. Um, and then was uh, allowed to incite the crowd. Um, and nothing was done at all. Uh, as far as I'm aware, I've seen players sent off for that. Um, but it seems to me that Zaha is uh, relatively impervious to those kinds of um, kind of punishments. Um, and off he went, and he went on to, you know, go ahead and, and cause some problems for us, um, although he didn't score, which was hilarious. Uh, I thought that Trossard was very poor yesterday, um, thought he offered very little, um, but at the same time, it's kind of harsh, right? Because if if Solly March would have been capable of scoring uh, that that pretty, uh, pretty easy chance as far as a chance goes for a Premier League footballer, um, he is on the end of an assist and I'm sure his his uh, his attitude would have been even better and his play would have been even better. So it's a bit rough for him. Um, I thought Montoya did an excellent job um, of marking Zaha out of the game yesterday. Zaha was a very, very frustrated young man uh, or old man. I don't even know how old Zaha is these days. 27. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought Montoya was incredibly good. Um, he kept Zaha pretty much entirely quiet. Uh, wasn't really required to do a whole lot of defensive work um, because he pretty much just man-marked him out of the game and did his job that way. Uh, so, you know, excellent work from him. Um, I thought that the back line looked just fine um, until they conceded that goal. Uh, it was, once again, Adam Webster allowing the man to run 
beyond him. Um, you know, I understand what Adam Webster is bringing to the team. I understand why Potter wants him to play. I don't understand why he continues to play him when he's responsible for so many of those errors. Um, it was his, again, it was him It was him who lost to Ayu yesterday uh, that, that ended up being the reason we got beat. Well, it wasn't the reason we got beat. The reason we got beat is because we can't score goals. But, this, this, you know, the stats don't lie in the fact that if you watch the other games, Manchester City, this one, numerous others, Adam Webster is caught flat-footed with players running behind him. Um, and scoring goals, and you just can't continue to allow that to happen. Um, and if that means that he needs to be rested uh, and not played for a while, then you know I think that the the lack of distribution from Shane Duffy will be worth it. Um, I believe Duffy was uh, a funeral yesterday, so was unable to play. So who knows? Maybe he would have been playing anyway. Um, just never got the opportunity. Uh, Sonny March, I thought was. Every, everything about Solly March was excellent, except for the bit that mattered. Um, six shots, three on target, one key pass, uh, you know, 86% pass accuracy. Um, he had a couple of dribbles. He won a couple of fouls. Um, you know, he, he completed three tackles, which was, you know, third most in the team. Um, I know what he's bringing to the team, but his finishing and his end product is so bad at this point. Um I think that I think that he was doing an excellent job at left wing back when we were playing that style of play at the beginning of the beginning of the season um and I think he needs to continue to stay there um I don't think that him playing as a winger or striker or attacker is going to continue to work for us um isn't working for us. He isn't scoring goals that should be scored. He isn't making the right decision with that final ball in the box. Um, and as a left wing back, you don't have to worry about that as much. Uh, but when you're supposed to be one of the focal points of the attack, um, along with Mopai and Trossard, you cannot afford to flop as many chances as he missed. Um, it just wasn't good enough. Uh, I thought David Proper, though, was excellent. Um, you know, four key passes, 85% pass accuracy, 80 touches of the ball, um, which was the most of any player that wasn't a defender. Um, also did his job defensively as well. Five tackles, two interceptions, one clearance. Uh, Bissouma, again, um, I, I am finding it very tough to warrant uh, or really kind of fight for the right <laughs> for Dale Stevens to take back that spot from Bissouma. Uh, four tackles, one clearance, uh, only committed to one foul. Um, and offensively, again, he, he created some excellent opportunities. He completed five dribbles more than anybody else in the team. Um, he got a shot off, which is something that Dale Stevens is not liable to do. Um, and, you know, he creates that bit of dynamism um, and create chances that, that you don't often see. Uh, I thought Aaron Moy, again, was pretty poor. Um, his stats say that he was excellent, but just watching him, um, he seems off the pace uh, ever since he signed that new deal and, you know, signed for us full-time. Um, Aaron Moy has not been the same player that he was uh, a while ago. I think he's been incredibly poor uh, since signing his full-time deal with the Albion. And I don't know what it is. You know, I don't know why he has become so poor. Um, I don't know what is going on there. Uh, but something has got to change. Um, 
and you know the 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 brains in me would say that okay well he will be the logical uh person to drop out for alexis McAllister. um but we haven't seen alexis McAllister all season um all season that's a silly thing to say he only signed a couple of months ago but you know we lost uh and we deserve to lose because we weren't able to score the chances that we had presented to us um for the the people who who want Potter out, I think that you're probably not going to get your wish, and I'll tell you why. Um, because we created three chances that we absolutely, as a Premier League team, should be scoring, and failed to score all three of them. Um, Potter cannot run on the pitch and take that chance for them. Uh, that is on the players. Um, we can only create the chances. Uh, he can only create a style of play that creates those chances. Um, and if we are not capable of scoring them then that falls on the player, not the manager. Um, there are questions, I think, that have to be asked, though, of another man, um, and that is uh, Dan Ashworth. Now, um, I think it's very interesting that, you know, most people have been very quiet about uh, Mr. Ashworth for a long time, um, but I tried quite a bit to get a conversation with him over the the international break or the, the winter break rather um but people on north stand chat and facebook and all the other good good non-toxic <laughs> uh, communities are starting to talk about the uh the question that we have um he joined as football head of football operations a year ago uh we were very intentional um which is also one of my most despised uh, business lingo words, by the way. We need to be intentional about this. Um, but we were, as a club, very intentional uh, to notate that Graham Potter was a head coach and not a manager. Um, and since that time uh, that we brought in Dan Ashworth in February or March last year, uh, we failed to win more than one or two games under Hutton for the rest of the season. Um, we survived by the skin of our teeth and then immediately sacked the manager, um, who I believe, which I believe was the right decision uh, based on our performances in 2019. Um, but it does beg the question of how it all went so wrong so fast. Um, we then brought in uh, Graham Potter, who uh, didn't really have a great deal of experience in the Premier League but you know his his resume to me is excellent um and we have then gone on to sign a couple of players that make little to no sense um Adam Webster was a bizarre signing to bring in uh going all the whole hog to bring in Alexis McAllister and Tarek Lamptey with with uh, no way into the first team it looks like right now um letting go Florin Andone uh Anthony Knockhart uh Jurgen Lacardia um, a lot of these players were let go um, with no replacement brought in. Um, and it's worth noting that both Lacardia and Andone played incredibly well against Watford, by the way. Um, and they were both let go with no replacements brought in to help out the manager. Um, and we have now won, I believe, uh, seven league games since Dan Ashworth came in over a year ago, I believe. Um, the question has got to be asked uh, as to what... What influence does he have on the team at this point, right? Um, I think that if you have read any articles, um, because I have read a lot of them, um, in terms of what's going on with uh, the Brighton of Albion groups on Facebook, Instagram, The Argus, The Athletic, ESPN, Sky Sports, 
Um, you know, if you're looking at all of these uh, outlets and all of these details, um, the question has got to be... Uh, I've lost my train of thought because my dog was choking. So, yes, got it. Never mind, I'm back. Um, you read all these articles um, about the influence Dan Ashworth has, BT Sports, Sky Sports, all of them, right? And you read them all. And if you read them all, it paints a very very vivid picture of a man that seems to be almost entirely in control of recruitment um, and also seems to have a very questionable um, influence upon what the first team starting 11 looks like. Uh, and I am very curious to know just how true that is. Um, and this is, uh, this is stuff that I am reading on websites, from Potter's Mouth, from Ashworth's Mouth, from everybody else. Um, if you put the puzzle together, it does look like that man is having a significant say on what this first team looks like. And if that is the case, um, it feels like we're very much back in the days of David Burke uh, and Gus Poyet and Oscar Garcia, um, who both came out afterwards and said that it was very tough to do a job under him. Um, and it feels like the parallels are really beginning to show up. Um, so, you know, what's going on? I would love to just know uh, or have some more clarity on just what influence Dan Ashworth has um, because we're getting very mixed messages from everybody else in the in the, in the, uh, the club. Um, but I think we need to take a look at it and consider uh, what's going on there because if it's a coincidence, um, the, the absolute off-a-cliff form that we've had uh, from him walking into the door, uh, is it's pretty freaking wild. Um, I'm I'm surprised. So we shall see what happens. Um, I'm not going to talk about you know life in the championship just yet because we do have two more months to go. However long and arduous they may end up looking now with the uh, with the games ahead, but I think it's a question that should be asked: just how much influence is this man having on the team? Um, and why is he having it, if that is indeed the case? Uh, we have 10 games to go. We need 10 points from them to be safe. Uh, I think we can all agree that 38 is probably the benchmark now, um, with teams around us all inevitably getting results yesterday. Um, we have not won a single game this year. Uh, again, Groundhog Day is here, um, and we have a very, very tough run-in. Um, I think only West Ham can probably say they have a rougher one. Uh, so, where do those 10 points come? Uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers away next week, uh, followed by Arsenal, Leicester, Manchester United, Norwich, Liverpool, Manchester City, and then a final three of Southampton, Newcastle, and Burnley. Um, you've got to think that the majority of our points we're going to be looking to get from four of those 10, um, which is incredibly concerning, right? Uh, because the other six are games that previously we would have thought that are really considered free hits. We shouldn't be looking at taking points away from Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester City. Um, going away to Wolves is going to be incredibly tough. Uh, going away to Leicester is going to be incredibly tough. Um, so, you know, it begs the question as to where does where does our next result come from, let alone 10 points? Um, it is very worrying indeed. And... If we would have got those 10 points from our last, uh, you know, six, where we played Aston Villa, Bournemouth, West Ham, Watford, Sheffield United and Crystal Palace, um, 
we we took four points from six games um and you know four out of 18 is just not good enough so it is a worrying time indeed um for the albion and i think it's uh it's very quickly becoming a case of praying for a miracle um because the idea of getting 10 points from those last 10 games is very tough indeed I do have uh, a segment with Robin next, though. Um, we are doing a, another one of the Where Are They Now segments, and we have uh, goalkeepers, and specifically the goalkeepers of 2005-2006 we worked out. Um, we went through a you know a total, um, total conveyor belt of goalkeepers. Um, it was pretty insane, and uh, we will cover them all right now. So... Um, I will see you all next week uh, to cover the game against Wolves um, and have a good one. Just remembered um, that all of these goalkeepers played for us in the same year, which is a bit bizarre. Did they? All played for us in 2005. 2005, my God. We, what happened to us? How did we know? Goalkeepers in one year. I don't know. Yeah, various stages of 2005. So I guess we're going to uh, discuss the goalkeeping generation of 2005 today then. It's yeah. The best way of putting it. Um, yeah. Which have, is, uh, I did not realise that. Yeah, just a bit odd. So who do you want to kick off with? Uh, oosh. Hmm. Who was first? <laughs> I don't, well, uh, chronologic, let me work it out. Um, probably, um, it would have been Rami Sharban, I reckon. He joined us in February 2005, and David Yeldell would have been, I don't know, maybe it was David Yeldell. No, it couldn't have been. It's got to be Rami Sharban, I think. We can kick off with him, if you like. Yeah, I'm let's just try to see if I can find, I had an article on exactly when David Yeldell joined. Oh, no. January the 28th, 2005. So he'd have been first. Let's do it. Let's hit the uh, American himself. Yeah. He was born in Germany. Born in Germany. Yeah. To So his dad was in the army and his mum was German. Is that right? Uh, I think that's that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So then he starts his career at the... This the fact that we've got someone involved in Germany is you know pronunciation is going to be all over the place. Yeah, just, it's going to I'm be. I'm saying that up front. It's going to be awful. So if there's any listeners who do speak German or are German, apologies in advance for butchering yeah. everything to do with German. Um, so yeah, he starts off at Stuttgarter Kickers, which is a great name in Germany. Yeah, um, he was born there too, wasn't he? In Stuttgart. Yeah, he was. So yeah, local club. Then he gets his move to Blackburn, who would have been in the Premier League at that point, um, but never plays for them, as far as I can gather, um, and then moves on loan to us. And, of course, make, only makes a handful of appearances for us, one of which is the infamous pink goalkeeping top at Leeds United. Yes. Which is, that say, all I can think about whenever I hear his name is... See, no, no aspersions, but no aspersions being cast on the people of Leeds. But I think it's more the fact that, given the connotations that occasionally get associated with the Albion, 
um, having a pink goalkeeping shirt kind of only fueled the um, the stereotype slightly. Yeah, especially back then. Um, and our manager at the time, Mark McGee, correct? Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. I thought so. Um, so yeah, so he joins us and he only plays a handful of games on loan. I think he only plays about three games or something like that. No, in fact, yeah, three games he plays for us um, and then goes back. And then Rami Sharban basically arrives as soon as he leaves, pretty much, because he joins in February 2005 um, on non-contract terms. So yeah, that's the, chron- that's the chronology of it. Yeah, so, so do you think Elder... that, was he a, uh, was Yodo um, like an emergency loan? Did Kuipers get hurt, do we think? And we had to well, bring him didn't... in as like an emergency 30-day loan? When didn't Kuipers have his car crash some point around then? Don't you remember he was, he was like, injured that would in a car sense. crash? I do, yeah. He's back by the time that Shanyo's on the scene because he's keeping Shanyo out of the team. And we'll move right. on to that later. But yeah, I think early, early 2005... I might, I might have got this totally wrong. He might have a, you know, another injury, but I do remember him having a car crash. Um, so yeah, basically he's he's out injured. So we seem to going through a short term list of people to fill the the jersey, basically. Yep. Yeah. No, so I he like plays for us. No, sorry, carry on. No, you go. No, I was going to say it's a, another one of a sort of quite a, a short-lived career with us. Say, so don't have any memories beyond that Leeds United game, um, and yeah, he then he then leaves and then goes back to Stuttgart to Kickers, where he plays ninety-nine games. Yeah, I was going to say that. One. I'm surprised. So yeah, I guess he must have. Yeah, he's he's had this kind of little English adventure. It's not really gone especially well over the period of a couple of years. Um, and has then gone back to Germany, where he then, yeah, plays for for Stuttgart kickers, and then Koblenz and Duisburg plays, you know, best part of a couple hundred games for them, um, and then weirdly ends up at Bayer Leverkusen. Yeah, and at the slightly... same time gets a call up for the U.S. national team and gets yeah. one cap. So yeah, his his career seems to have it looked like it was taking a bit of a nosedive, and then it seems to have. Um, actually finished on a relative high. Yep. I would love to know if any US uh, listeners can remember the day that David Yeldell stepped up in 2011 to be your goalkeeper. Yeah. I think he makes one appearance by the looks yep. of it. Yep. Oh, it was... Um, oh, here we go. It was a uh, it was a national cap against Paraguay, and he came on as a substitute. Oh, wow. At halftime. He replaced Marcus Hanneman. You remember him? Oh, yeah. Did he play for... Was he at Reading? He was Reading, yeah. Yeah, I do remember him. So, yeah. 200, say it's... 276 appearances for Reading, actually. Oh, wow. I know. I didn't think it was that much. So, yeah, he seems to have... He's got himself a, an international cap, played, played in the top division of Germany. So, yeah. And now he's at... Well, I'm not even going to pronounce the club where he's currently assistant coach. Well, I can do the first one. Sonnenheim. Yeah, I can, I can do that. I can do the first bit. Grossenspach. Grossenspach. Like you've got to think so because it's spelled just like Pascal. Yeah. So I'm going gross and then it. Aspash. Yeah. I don't. I, yeah. Anyway, he's now assistant coach there. So. Yep. He was a goalkeeping coach as well. He's so he's continuing to go up the up the realms. He's now assistant coach. Well, so he's doing well, him. isn't he? Yeah. yeah Can't say he isn't hungry. So yeah, he's um. Yeah, he's probably he's a bit of a niche a niche player really, but 
He's this. He is exactly the sort of player that this segment is built for. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Just people David that probably Yoga. have totally forgotten about him, and fans of a certain generation will probably think, "Oh yeah, I remember him." But yeah, it's good. I mean, another one that I'd say I've got no real specific memories about him other than that Leeds game. Happy that he went on to have a a decent career, got an international cap, and is still in the game. So, you know, agreed. Good luck to him. Good luck to him. Um, yeah, I'm just reading here. Born to a German mother and an American father who was in the U.S. military. So hence his yep. dual citizenship. Um, so I guess, yeah, standard, isn't it? I mean, so many, there's so many U.S. US military bases still in Germany now, I think, aren't there? Um, right. And obviously, especially he was born 1981. So, yeah, I mean, still kind of talking about Cold War era, aren't we? So, I mean, probably still, still quite a hefty military presence. So, yeah. Anyway. That is David Yeldell. What a guy. What a guy. What a guy. Uh, so yeah, chronologically, we then move on to Rami Sharban. Well, this is my favourite. Yeah, I mean, his career path has followed a fairly similar um, arc to David Yeldell's in that yeah. starts off, you know, in his, in his home, homelands, gets his big move to England, in this case, Arsenal, doesn't really seem to work out in England, goes back to Scandinavia, and then plays a ton of games and gets into the Sweden team. See, we've done condensed that very quickly. But yeah, so a similar, similar kind of arc, which is quite interesting, actually. So yeah, he, uh, he is of um, Egyptian descent. Yep, so and he's Finnish, born I in, see here. Yeah, so he's born in Sweden, starts his, like, again, Scandinavian pronunciations. This is just... Yeah, um, this is just... <laughs> <laughs> this is not happening. So he starts his, his career at a local club around Stockholm. That's as that's as close to it as I'm gonna I'm gonna venture. Yeah. Uh, so he then moves to Cairo to play for Zamalek, who are one of the biggest clubs in Egypt. I mean, I do in, know that. Yeah, I mean in, in Africa, Africa I suppose. Much, yeah. yeah. Um, plays for them. This is 1995 for some context. Yep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and he's at, so he's at university in, in Egypt and is obviously playing football at the same time. He then goes back to Sweden in 1997 and becomes the number one at Naka. Um, again, a club close to where he grew up. Then moves on to Jurgarden, who I know from Football Manager. Signed yep. some absolutely bargain wonder kids from them over the years. Yep, agreed. Uh, Kim, I think they Kim actually Kalstrom, won the league recently. Yeah, I think Kim Kalstrom came from Jurgarden, I think. Yep. Way back when. He's one of my favourite favorite football manager wonder kids. Anyway, so he then goes to Jurgarden, becomes their number one, plays nearly 50 games for them. And then he gets his big move to Arsenal, which seems to have come relatively out of nowhere. But he's brought in to Arsenal as a potential replacement for David Seaman. Yep. Which is a, you know, it's a fairly lofty, fairly lofty yeah, that's, position. That's some to, boots um, to fill, ain't it? <laughs> yeah, really some big boots to fill. So he then comes in, David Seaman gets injured and he fairly quickly gets a chance, plays in two Champions League games, home to PSV and away to Roma, as well as in the Premier League. So he's looking like he's got a shot of, you know, fulfilling the purpose that he's brought in for. Yeah, and, then, and looking at the uh, looking at the stories from those games, he he isn't really mentioned, which probably yeah, means I mean, exactly. it just good. fine. Yeah, I mean, obviously that is fairly peak Arsenal. I mean, this is fairly close to the Invincible season, isn't it? So yeah, exactly. oh yeah, of course it's the season before oh three oh four was the Invincible season. Yeah, so this yep. is the year before that. So I mean, this is this is he comes into a very very good Arsenal team and seemingly doesn't really look out of place. 
So he's obviously he's come in, replaced Seaman whilst he's been injured, looks fine. And, you know, he's, he's looking like a good signing. He might be the next David Seaman. And then he breaks his leg. Training. On Christmas Eve. Yeah, I know. 2002. That's a, a, that's a real kick in the nuts, isn't it? It really um, is. And it's pretty much that moment that defines the rest of his career. Because yeah, you would because think that who, what could yeah, have exactly. been if he would have... He's on course to be the, you know, to be the, you know, the next number one. You know, he's had his, had his taste at the top level, Champions League, Premier League, hasn't looked out of place, gets injured. Um, and in fact, you know, David Seaman retires that following summer and Wenger gets in Jens Lehmann. Is, yeah. You know, that, and the rest is the rest is history. Yep. Um, which is just it's a bit sad, isn't it? It Actually, is really that kind it's... of twist of fate. Yeah. And it's the amount of the amount of players you don't realize that probably have that situation, too. They just uh, I mean, Loire yeah. is one of them from a local level, too. Like, yeah, exactly. If he hadn't done his knee a couple of times, you know, who knows how many times he could have carried on pushing forward. Yeah. Definitely. Because of how I mean, fast he was. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, probably he's another one that, you know, given opportunities at Newcastle, he, you know, could have, you know, could have been in a Newcastle team for 10, 10, 15 years. Yep. Anyway, so yeah, he stays, so he's injured, probably comes back in, he comes back to fitness for the pre-season of that 03-04 season where Arsenal go undefeated. But obviously Jens yep. Lehmann plays, plays every game, so he doesn't get a look in. January 2004, he goes on loan to West Ham, but didn't make a single appearance for them. Um, gets recalled by Arsenal because Stuart Taylor, the backup keeper, is injured, so he sits on a bench. And he must have got a winner's medal for that in- invisible, invincible season then, maybe. I'm wondering if he did because he was on the bench a lot. Like, do you he need to the, have made an appearance? Or it must is be a bit different not? as a goalkeeper, I guess, because of course you're not really. I know it's normally appearance based, isn't it? But for a goalkeeper, you know, you're not really. It's not really shared around, is it? So, right. <laughs> I don't know whether the rules are any different. They're probably not. But anyway, so he's on the bench. He's involved in the history. He's in that squad at least. So you know, yep. he's part well, of footballing history. Yeah. Um, so obviously, he's then released by Arsenal at the end of that season. Uh, and between, so that would have been sort of summer 2004, he gets released. Between summer 2004 and February 2005, he seems to be out of the game. Um, and then we sign him in February 2005, non-contract terms, makes his debut in a 2-1 win over Sunderland. The days, the glory days when we could bring in players on non-contract terms. Right. That Sunderland game, I remember we brought out a DVD of it, didn't we? Did that we really? Yeah, no, we did. Yeah, this was in this is the peak Albion period where any big where any big game involved us um, bringing out a celebratory DVD. <laughs> Lord, I suppose the days. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that. I suppose the days before. Um, you know, the days before kind of highlights and all of that being accessible for the lower leagues, so that you know fans who'd missed the game, you know, yeah, yeah, monetize it. Anyway, that's a bit of a weird thing that I've just plucked from my memory. So yeah, he signs a short-term contract till the end of the season, plays another six games, doesn't get another contract with us at the end of the season. We release him on a free. Um, I don't again, recall him being all that bad for us either. No, not like, he's I. not so, one that stands out as a you know he doesn't stand out as a total no, shit show. Exactly. So I mean, it's yeah, a bit of a funny one. I mean, I don't know. It is at that point again. We don't know if it's financially. You know, obviously having come from Arsenal, right. I don't know whether we just. You know, whether he it's a classic case of we've given him a chance to get back into the game and maybe he's thought, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but, you know, maybe we just the finances maybe weren't there. Um, yeah, exactly. 
I'm speculating. But, you know, as I say, I agree with you. There's no real reason. I couldn't think of any particular reason why we would release him. Um, I mean, I guess Kuypers was maybe back to full health. So I also think this was also the was this also the year when we signed the uh not Beanie, the other one, Blaney. Oh yeah. Um, and I think he theory. did he not beat him to the punch as well? Because I think yeah. that was the year Kuipers was hurt. And I think we had yeah. I think we signed a couple of them. Well, clearly we signed a couple of them. <laughs> but I think we uh I think we had Blaney as well. And I think yeah, he so we've gone through an absolute um we've gone through a catalogue of keepers, haven't we, at this this yeah. point. So Either way, he doesn't stay. He gets released at the end of the season. Joins Dundee United on trial. Um, plays in a match as they beat Sheffield Wednesday, the massive Sheffield Wednesday, to win the City of Discovery Cup. I love that. Which I have to admit <laughs> is not something I've ever heard of. Um, yeah, it looks like it's a specifically Dundee-based uh, tournament. Sponsored by the Dundee Evening Telegraph. Yeah. These days. Uh, oh, it was, it was only two. It was only twice. Yeah. yeah. 2005. So it must have been the Disco- City of Discovery Cup in 2005 and the Evening Telegraph Challenge Cup in 2006. And we had um, uh, Wolves yeah. and Sheffield Wednesday were the two clubs chosen to play with Dundee United and Dundee. There you go. What a group. Carl yeah. Court. Carl Court. Of, uh, of Wolverhampton Wanderers is the top goal scorer in history of the Evening Telegraph Challenge Cup. Well, I think that probably tells you all you need to know about it, doesn't it? <laughs> I think Don't it need does. Don't to go any further than that. <laughs> so anyway, he he uh, he doesn't doesn't stay on at Dundee United past his trial. He then also has a trial at Bristol City. Um, it said reading about it, it said he couldn't agree terms with Bristol City. So again, I think that maybe plays into our idea about perhaps he's after a bit more money than a lot of the kind of level could afford to pay him i agree with you i think it uh i think that's exactly right i think you're especially then it looks like who he signs for is he kind of goes home so he's yeah. happy to take the pay cut because he probably already has a house there and all that sort of stuff so yeah so then goes home goes to frederickstadt uh where he spends a couple of years clearly as their number one because he makes nearly 50 appearances yeah and then he signs for hammerby again i've heard of them you know fairly big yep. club in scandinavia signs a five-year contract in 2008 and by that stage he'd have been 33 i think so yeah, yeah they're nailing been, him down so, yeah so he's really getting a five-year contract um yeah but we've we've kind of missed the bit in between, which is when he was at Frederickstadt. That is when he suddenly gets his international career going. So yeah, two thousand and six, he gets called up to their world. I do remember this because obviously he'd only played for us the year before. Yeah, I do remember exactly. thinking there's someone that we decided to not offer. A, you know, there's someone that we didn't give a new contract to, who a year later is in the Sweden squad. You know, it's not like they're in. You know, with respect to other nations. It's not like he's, you know, playing for a minnow at the World Cup. You know, this is right, a fairly exactly. established, you know, European team. It ends up in their World Cup squad. Especially um, back then, too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and 2006 been, Swedes were, like, not yeah, a decent. joke. Yeah, so he's, um, yeah, so, so he's 31 at this point when he makes his, 30-31 when he makes his international debut. Yeah, so he gets into their squad having not played a single game for them before that which is a bold decision. Seriously. Um, 
especially yeah. given his career tra- trajectory I mean, at I that g- point. Yeah, I guess I suppose given the fact that at this point he's you know he's he's probably just had a season. Um, you know, playing for in the top Frederick. division in Sweden, so I guess they're they're probably aware of him from a domestic point of view. Anyway, makes his debut in a warm up game, plays forty five minutes, keeps a clean sheet, and then actually plays in the World Cup itself proper. I do remember this after after Andreas Isaacson was hit by a shot in the face and hit the ground with his head. Yeah, remember I those? remember that too. I do remember this because it was a really it. weird injury. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he then, then plays in that, then plays another four games in Euro 2008 qualifiers, including keeping a clean sheet against Spain. I mean, this is 2008 Spain. Just about, yeah, they are now hitting their, like, unstoppable force point. Yeah, because they won the World Cup, what, 2006? Did they win that World Cup? I think they won both, didn't they? Did they win six and ten? Yeah. No, Ger- they won, did Germany win one of them? They definitely won Euro 2008, I think, didn't they? They did. They definitely, I think... That may have been their first cup win, though. Yeah, I think you might be right. Anyway, either way, this is a this is a top class Spain team. Yeah. Um, and then it's yeah, he then gets into their their final squad for the uh, for the tournament, which is a pretty good effort. Yeah, exactly. Especially given where he'd come from and how he'd just kind of been thrown into it, it was uh, pretty major. Yeah. So I say it's a it's a very odd career trajectory that's really you know peaking at the peaking at the um, at the right time. But yep, it was kind of quite they late two, in the day, isn't it? So they won Euro two thousand eight, and then they won two thousand and ten as well. So two thousand and eight was when they were really in their like unbeatable spot because they just waltzed through the Euros and that World Cup in Africa and just killed everybody that tried. <laughs> So, I mean, keeping a clean sheet against that team is, um, I mean, particularly, it's not a friendly, it's a qualifier as well. So, I mean, it's going to be their top-notch, you know, it's going to be their top-notch team. Yep. So, good effort. So, yeah, he's another, he's a bit of a strange one. And last but not least. Yeah, my favourite, actually, and I've got no real reason or idea why he's my favourite, but he is. Um, Florent Chagnot who joins us in the summer of 2005. Yeah, um, he pretty much takes the spot of Shaban as he, as he heads off yeah. to do his thing. And he's an interesting one because, again, he's, I know we've talked about particularly the French players that we talked about in that episode. He's another one that comes with a really good pedigree. So he joins on a one-year loan deal from Rennes. Yep. And he's played, he's already played more than a handful of games in the French top division for Rennes before he joins us. Yep. So, I mean, this is a really good sign, pedigree-wise, you know, this is a really good signing. And he's quite yeah, young. Again, like, we're bringing in Arsenal, we're bringing in, like, the top league of France. Like, we're... we're yeah. You, I mean, can't, like you Carole, can't say we're not we trying. About, <laughs> yeah, Seb Carroll was Monaco, wasn't he, when we talked about him, and we had, yep. like, Frutos again, I can't remember where he came from, but, you know, decent top-level teams in in france so anyway he comes in with a good pedigree i do remember him joining and then really doesn't get in ahead of kuipers so i guess kuipers has probably come back to full fitness and he really doesn't get that much of a look in right so i've actually found because i do remember him having a real flounce do you remember this 
I do not. I do I not find, remember much remember about uh, Shanyu at all. I, um, I remember it from the Argus at the time, and I had to go through it. It took me ages, but I found the article. Um, so he makes his debut for the Albion in the League Cup in a 3-1 defeat to Shrewsbury. Obviously, League Cup round one. So, you know, August, just after yep. joining. And then we see absolutely nothing of him. He's on the bench for games here and there. Um, but we see absolutely nothing of him in terms of appearances for the rest of the calendar year, basically. Uh, and then we get to Boxing Day, where the Albion have a game against QPR. And for whatever reason, Shanyo has decided that he reckons he should have been playing for that game. Because the Argus <laughs> article, this is from December the 27th, 2005, the day after the game. Florent Chagnot's Albion career could be over after just one appearance in five months. The French goalkeeper signed on a year-long loan from Rennes at the start of the season left Wisdeen in a huff yesterday when Michel Kuypers was preferred for the clash against QPR. Now, what is about to follow is peak Mark McGee in terms of quote. I was going to say, did, I thought you were going to say he sent him to walk home from, from a random well, city. Well, <laughs> boss... Boss Mark McGee revealed, and this is a direct quote, Flo spat his dummy when he realised he wasn't playing. He was last seen running down North Street heading for the Channel Tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> it really is Pete Mark McGee. That is I had brilliant. To make, oh, it's just brilliant. I had to make a decision on what I've seen, and I wasn't confident enough about show, Flo to put him in the team. So he hadn't played a game since August, spits his dummy out, and then goes... And the really odd thing is, basically, McGee then says the lad should probably consider going back now because he's not getting first-team football, which is why he's come, hasn't worked out. Um, and then the weird thing is, is that literally a week after this, he makes his only championship start for us against Southampton. So he ran so, back pretty quickly then. So, yeah, he's run back pretty quickly. Um, and then he plays for us in the FA Cup game against Coventry in round three. Also, you know, in early January. So it makes a couple of consecutive appearances and then um, and then leaves in, in that summer at the end of that season, which is a bit odd. So that's 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 2005, 2006. Um, and then weirdly, if you look at all the stats, websites, soccer base, et cetera, et cetera, um, he disappears from 2006 until 2010, 11. There's absolutely no trace that I can find of him for those five seasons. Yeah, I have struggled to find much past like the basics of the Albion for me. Like he is, yeah, he's fairly elusive. So yeah, two thousand five, two thousand six till two thousand ten, eleven. There's absolutely no trace of him. Two thousand ten, eleven, he pops up again playing for Le Poissier V, who are playing in like regional football in france like fairly right. low down like non-league kind of well it's in that sort of national so it's the third or fourth fourth level i think of their pyramid and the only reason i know that because i found on soccer base it's got that he makes one appearance in 2010 2011 um for le poissier v and he makes it against a team from cherbourg which is actually very close to where my parents live which is the only reason why it sort of popped out at me and i know that the level that they play at is appalling so yeah the weird thing is is that then um 
after that, he then 2011-12 to 2015-16, he plays for Lorient. You know, who are oh, sort of a team, okay, yeah, top, you know, top division. You know, one of those sort of slight yo-yo teams. You know, between the top division and the second division in France. Yep. Plays for them for the next, you know, four years and makes quite a number of appearances in the top division again. So it's a really, it's quite an odd one. He is an odd one all the so way again, through, gone, I think. Yeah, so basically he's dropped, seems to have dropped out of football and then come back in at a very low level just to get his hand, you know, hand back in the game. And then assigned for a fairly decent club, spent five years with them. You know, I think he was then, he obviously wasn't their number one. I think he made, you know, 20, 25 appearances across those five years. He's obviously then, you know, reserve keeper. Right. But he still played, you know, 25 games at, in the top division in France again. And he's also so been a... able to keep himself together as well, because if he's kicking off at the with Dean, I'm surprised he was able to keep his shit together at, you know, top division yeah, in France else. when he's not getting games. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the odd, odd thing. So his career is kind of bookended at both ends by playing in the top division in France and then a whole lot of random stuff in the middle. I bet he's made a lot of money from being sitting on a bench, though. So it's highly even, bizarre. Now he's then. still playing. Now he's playing for US Le Montagnard, who, again, are fairly low down in France. He's kind yeah, of 30, I was going to say, I ain't them. I think he's 36, 37 now. So, yeah, quite a bizarre... Quite a bizarre um, turn. Again, there's a lot of similarities. All of those keepers seem to have had a slightly strange kind of career path. Yeah, but kind of like arc the big to their career. Yeah, yeah big finish in all, in all cases, <laughs> which is a bit strange. So that yeah, 2004, um, 2005 championship season, which pretty much covers two and a half of the goalkeepers. Um, do you want to guess who it was that was relegated that year? We were in the championship that year. 2004 2005 so obviously we got promoted 2004 was playoff year wasn't it yep so, so we, we get, went we up got that promoted year. so 2004 2005 was our first was our, we were season back in the championship right correct yep um the only thing i remember about that season is i'm pretty sure sunderland won the league that year they did because when we, that was part of the reason why we released that DVD, I think, because we'd beaten them at home at the Withdean and they were like far and away the best team. In Understood. The that makes sense now, yeah. Uh, who went down? Uh, all I know is I think from memory, we were very, very close to going down, like a couple we of points. We were. I believe like, this was the same year that we played Ipswich on the last game of the season um, and they were pushing for promotion at the same time and we drew 1 1. And that was pretty much what kept us up. And now I'm seeing the table. That is what kept us up. That draw with Ipswich. No, I think that was, I think that Ipswich one was Nicky Forster. I think that's a few years later. Was it? Yeah. I've got a feeling. We, uh... Unless it could have been twice. But I do remember Nicky Forster at the Withdean. That would have been 2008-ish, something like that. Anyway, I can't remember. Either way, I remember that we were pretty close to going down. I wouldn't have... I wouldn't even be able to guess who went down, actually. We've got... Uh, it's weird thinking about... like It's been 10, 15 years, and some of these teams are in such similar spots and such different ones. So we had Gillingham go down in 22nd place, who are now... Oh, would, right. They would kill for being in the championship now, I'm sure. Uh, Forest went down that year. Oh, wow. And oh, then yeah, Rotherham was... United went down bottom. That was a bit of a precursor to Forest spending quite a few years in league one i think wasn't weren't they yep 
Yeah, I think that was the basically the absolute shit show. So what this shows is that for the last for the last fifteen years, Rotherham have literally spent the entire time getting promoted to the championship and then getting relegated and then promoted and relegated. It's bizarre, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be the pattern they followed for the last fifteen years. And the teams around us that also survived on the last day were Crew, uh, Coventry City, Watford, and Plymouth. I'd forgotten that Plymouth, particularly, I'd forgotten that Plymouth, Crew, Gillingham had had such a spell in the championship. Yeah, uh, I mean, Odd, how's this it? for a thing as well? Uh, <laughs> Crew, Crew Alexandra, they conceded 86 goals that season and still stayed Christ. up on goal difference. Christ. So they, must they, had have, a better, they, must... they had a better goal difference than us. They scored 66 goals that year. And let in 86. I've just found the table. So they scored, they scored more <laughs> goals than West Ham who finished. No, they scored the same number of goals as West Ham who finished sixth. And got promoted in the playoffs. And they, and they scored more goals than Reading and Sheffield United who were seventh and eighth. So yeah, so basically Stoke City. Oh, this is, this is just classic Stoke, isn't it? Stoke City finished 12th, played yep. 46 games and scored 36 goals. Yep. It oh, is beautiful. Just, um, can you just, that would have just been... I can't even imagine watching that season. Oh, it's grim. It's grim. Anyway. Oh, well, that's quite nice. Yeah, I thought it would be a nice little finish off there. No, I've enjoyed that one. 